top of the morning to you, and welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. We're actually bringing a rebroadcast of an episode I recorded about 18 months ago. It was called The Third Option. That's the name of a book that a good friend of mine, Miles McPherson, published about two years ago. Miles is a former San Diego Charger football player, and as an African-American growing up here in America, he experienced a lot of the trials that go along with that, became a, a famous football player, and then went on to build one of the largest mega churches in the United States, a church considered the most racially diverse church in America. He's a brilliant man, he's a charismatic dude, and he also has some great insights and some practical ways for all of us to introduce the concept of respect, take away the us and them mentality, and bring us all to a place where we can all genuinely be one nation under God. And so this is a rebroadcast, something we don't do very often at the Brian Buffini Show, but I think with everything that's going on today, it's important to refresh on principles and practices that can bring understanding, harmony, and unity. Enjoy. Now, Miles is a former NFL defensive back. He played for my hometown, San Diego Chargers, and then made a a very unusual career change. Went from being an NFL guy where he's hitting people for a living to becoming a pastor. And he's the pastor of the Rock Church right here in sunny San Diego, one of the most influential churches in the country. About 20,000 people a weekend come to this church. They have five campuses, online services. They do all kinds of work in the community with prisons, thrift stores. It's an amazing organization. My kids and I have attended the church dozens and dozens of times. He's a leader and influencer, not just here in San Diego, but across the country. He's been on Good Morning America and Larry King Live. He's the author of over seven books, and he tells me the highlight of his career is being on the Brian Buffini show this morning. That's what I heard. <laughs> Top of the morning to you, Miles. How you doing? <laughs> Top of the morning to you, my brother. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. So glad to have you here today, and we're going to talk today about a third option, and uh, we're going to delve into that, and I'm excited to talk about that subject, which will be a little different change of pace even for our audience, and I think it's good to expand the mind, expand the heart, get more exposure. But before we delve into that, there might be, believe it or not, a few people listening that never heard of you. And I would love to kind of walk through the story. (laughs) So let's go back to where it all started, where you grew up, where you're from, family life, the whole deal. Where did young Miles McPherson start his journey? Grew up in New York, have two brothers and two sisters. My father was a police officer in New York City for 30-something years. My mother was a nurse on Long Island where we lived. I have a brother who was a Heisman runner-up in 1987. Wow. I have a brother who was an eighth-ranked boxer. And two sisters, they didn't do anything athletically. <laughs> but <laughs> great people, they just didn't play sports. So, But my brothers and I, we played sports since we were, I started at 10, my other brother started at 8. Playing football, baseball, boxing, uh, everything we can handle. But football was my main focus. Mm. I played four years in Pop Warner all through high school, all through college, and then got drafted to the NFL in 1982. Where'd you play college, Miles? I played a small school, University of New Haven. We had oh, yeah. uh, 2,500 kids in the school, and believe it or not, one of our games, we had 15 people. <laughs> <laughs> it rained so hard, and literally we were playing in the lake, and it was my mother, my father, my sister, my brother. <laughs> that was the only, only people in the stand. The McPherson showed up. The McPherson's and the Vendettos, my, my teammates' family, they lived down the street. Nobody was there, literally 15 people. But it was a real small program, and 
you know, they had never had a winning season until my freshman year. Wow. We had a great freshman class, and we had winning seasons every year. We were undefeated our second year. I was All-American my third year, and then wow. got drafted in my fourth year. I mean, how many people ever got drafted in the history of New Haven College? I was the first. Yeah. I don't know how many people got drafted. I think 10 got tryout, but I was the first All-American sure. and the first player drafted. That's amazing. I'm sure there's a whole story to that, and anybody who's ever had kids in sports and whatever else, going to the little school, doing that. Also, anybody who knows anything about sports, how was it having a brother who was a Heisman Trophy runner-up, which is the Heisman Trophy, the best college player in the country in a sport that is close to being a religion in America? That had to be kind of hard shoes to deal with. How was that? He's young. He's five years old. When I was in the NFL, I was telling my teammates about my brother who was in high school. Mm. He was in high school. And I said, you got to watch my brother. He's in high school. He's going to be all this so by the time he was a Heisman runner-up, I was out of the NFL. Wow. However, he was awesome. He was All-American in track. He high-jumped oh, six wow. eight. He was a hurdler. Jeez. He was just a super, super athlete, way better than me. Uh, and then my other brother was eighth-ranked boxer. He's boxing on television while I'm playing <laughs> in the NFL. And I'm like, that's my brother. He, wow. he beat people up. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I got to go to the Heisman award show wow. when he lost, which was a rip-off. But that's who, a who won that year? Who won that year? Well, Notre Dame won. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Gave it to a guy named Tim Brown. Oh, yeah. Come on now. I'm not going to fight the Irish. Come on now. You think I'm going to fight for that? Yeah. Where'd yeah. your brother go to college? Syracuse. Oh, yeah, sure. New Yorker. And you're, you're Long Island. Now, it's funny enough, my father was actually born in Long Island and then went back when he was seven to Ireland. Whereabouts in Long Island are you from? Nassau County, Westminster. Oh, Nassau, no, well. And you've often said yourself, you're kind of a cornucopia yourself in your family demographic and how you're made up, right? You've got all kinds yeah. of influences in your ethnic background. Yeah, all my grandparents are from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. I have one white grandmother, one grandmother who's half Chinese and black, and two black grandfathers, and my white grandmother. And by the way, my grandmothers knew each other as teenagers. My white grandmother was sent out of Jamaica, West Indies, to Jamaica, Queens, New York, so mm. she wouldn't marry a black Jamaican. Jeez. And so she, she meets a black Jamaican in Jamaica. <laughs> in Jamaica, New York. Wow. In Jamaica, New York. Isn't that so funny? double Jamaican. And, wow. And they ended up getting married. And what was sad is that her family disowned her. Mm. We never knew him. We never saw him, never heard about him, never talked about him. So it was all these brown people and this one white lady that we had no other white family because her side, you know, they just own her. And you always say you got that nice mocha color going on. My kids love yeah. it because that's the way my kids look. They all look like we, when we've ever attended your church, people think they're your kids and not mine. So, you know. I got to meet your kids. I yeah. want to meet your kids. Oh, there's something. There's something. So you come along, you go through, you, you know, you're in, from an athletic family. You're here in New York. You go to this small school, and you obviously excel extraordinarily. New Haven most people are Googling as we're talking New Haven to find out where there's a university there. <laughs> and, and this guy becomes an All-American. My wife was an All-American. There's a very small number of people get to call themselves All-American. And you go on then to make the NFL. You can brush by that because it's your experience. But for the average person, A, they're not making New Haven. Secondly, they're not getting to be an All-American. And they're sure as heck not getting to the NFL. Just as you talk about that, that's the classic underdog piece. What is it that drove you to be able to achieve that? You weren't highly recruited. You weren't a big name. You weren't offered to go to Syracuse. How did you make the NFL from New Haven? 
Yeah, you know, my high school experience was different. My brother went to a different high school where they had a better football program. My sure. school was financially challenged. We actually discontinued football after two or three games my senior year because oh, wow. of money. And then someone donated money, and we got to finish the season. But we had no film. We had 18 guys on the team. It was a very small program. And I did okay, but the combination of that and no film to send to anybody. So I went to a small school. But my dream didn't change, and my passion didn't change. And I had a coach, uh, Gary Rio, who believed in the dream more than I did, and he made a flyer with my picture on it and all my stats. I was all New England, all American. I had 19 school records. I had 22 interceptions and all this Mm. stuff. And he sent it to every NFL team every week leading up to my senior year and all through the season. Not one NFL team came to see me until after the season they came and watched film. And then they took me out in the field and, and ran me through their drills and timed me and compared me to all the guys in Division One. They said, you know, you're just like the guys in Division One and on our team, and we see that you can play, and we see that you're quick enough, fast enough, good size, good speed. We can make this work. And I, I said, are you serious? Mm. And I didn't believe him. Wow. And my father bet me 100 bucks that I was going to get drafted. I said, there's no way I'm going to get drafted. He always believed in you. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I still owe him 100 bucks. But he, <laughs> He said, you're going to get drafted. And I'm telling you, when they called me up, I thought it was a joke. Wow. The lady called my friend's house. You know, we had no cell phone back then. And I was at my friend Jim Vendetto's house. It was an Italian family. We had played four years together, and their family adopted me. And I was over the house watching the draft. And they called, and, and I said, if you're going to call me, call me at my friend Jim's house. And the lady said, we just drafted you with the Los Angeles Rams. So I got drafted to the Rams. And I said, who is this? And she said, this is, you know, I can't remember her name. And I said, you're playing the joke on me. Tell me, who is this? This is not funny. This is not funny. And she put the coach on the line. Wow. And I was like, oh, this is for real. Wow. And I tell you, it was one of the happiest days of my life. It was literally not real. So here's, if I'm breaking that down, you know, you did all the work, you did all the stuff, but you had someone who believed in you, not just your dad, but you had this coach who believed in you. You had someone who promoted you and sent out your mm-hmm. stuff to other people. So something had to happen. These people had to become aware. You had the good news. You had this value, but someone had to hear about it, and someone had to go and shake the bushes a little bit to go make that happen. And the next thing you know, they gave you a look, right? Absolutely. He shook the bush every week, and I still have that flyer to this day wow. in my scrapbook because I remember when I saw the flyer, you know, I was a kid. I didn't know how to make a flyer. Mm-hmm. And I saw my picture of my stats. I was like, wow, how did you do? I mean, it wasn't really hard. Sure. <laughs> but I was like, how did you do this? Yeah. And he just sent it out, sent it out. Uh, he took me to the New York Giant training camp, and I met my first NFL player, Terry mm-hmm. Jackson. Mm-hmm. And he spent like four hours with me. And we ended up playing against each other. Wow. But those experiences changed my life from my mm-hmm. perspective. Amazing. And so you go to the Rams, and everybody thinks, and again, we all look at the sports from the outside looking in and from the inside looking out, as you know, and I know you do a lot of work with the NFL players today and the associations. It's not as pretty on the inside as it looks on the outside. You go to the Rams, great, you've made it. That wasn't quite the case, was it? No, you know, people don't realize the NFL, every sport is different, but when you – try out for an NFL team, about 90 to 100 guys try out, but only 53 make it. Mm-hmm. So you sign a contract, but you have to make the team. And when you get cut, you're fired. You don't get any money. Right. And so I got cut from the Rams on Labor Day. And just so the listeners know, Labor Day this year, 40 guys, 35 guys from every NFL team are going to lose their job. Mm-hmm. 
so I got cut. And I went to the hotel and cried, and I knew that every other team just cut their last few guys. Mm. And so everybody had extra guys. So if, if another team lost a guy, they already had a guy they just cut that they can bring right back who right. knew their system. Yeah, there's 1,200 unemployed guys all of a sudden, right? Exactly, exactly. So the strike came two weeks later, and there was nobody playing football. And so now I'm in California with no degree. I'm cut with no job, and nobody's playing football. There's not even an industry anymore. <laughs> so there's a few layers of obstacles ahead of me. And this is, you know, when you think your dream is dead, mm. and for all your business people listening, and, and there's so many obstacles, there's always somebody. You should never count out what God's doing in your life. Mm. And next thing you know, the season started again, and a guy in the San Diego Chargers, the first game after the strike ended, got hurt. And because we scrimmaged and played the Chargers in the preseason as the Rams five times, they knew me. Mm. And so they brought me and two other guys down to try out. And, you know, it was like a 45-minute tryout for three of us. And they signed me. Wow. And I was on the team. What year was that, Miles? What year was that? Same year, 1982. Wow. And the Chargers were really yeah. good back then. We went to the playoffs, baby. Come yeah. on now. <laughs> <laughs> I got two more checks, I should say. <laughs> Amen. Oh, yeah. The Rams stunk that year. I went from the Rams to the – and San Diego so much better than L.A. and Anaheim and Orange County. It was such a big upgrade. Yeah, so that's great stuff. So now here comes your NFL career. When did you finish playing? No one ever finishes playing on their own terms, but when did you finish playing? My last season was 1985. Okay. And I retired in September 1986. Right. It's funny, for a guy that didn't play 15 years, you sure left a heck of a mark because everybody in town seemed to know Miles McPherson. So it was... Well, you know, people know me here more for being a pastor, believe right. it or not. You're easily forgotten. Yeah. However, when your name is continually repeated, they go, right. Pastor, Charger, Pastor, Charger. Right. You yeah. know, so they, they connect those two things, yeah. So let's connect those two things. How do you go from beating people up and covering corners and... Uh, getting in trash-talking battles with wide receivers <laughs> to uh, heading up a church. How did that all happen? Well, I played four years, and my first two years I was doing cocaine, smoking weed, chasing women, destroying my relationship with my girlfriend, back and forth, breaking up every week. And there were these two guys on my team. I actually had cocaine on the plane one day mm. coming from a, a game doing cocaine in the bathroom. And I was miserable. I was empty and destroying my life, not even realizing that I was so dumb. And there were these two guys on the team who were Christians, and they, I saw them go through trials, one of which is he blew his knee out, and they had so much peace about them. You know, they weren't stressed. They treated everyone with respect. They had a great time. They were funny. They were respected. And I knew the gospel. I knew about God, but there was something that they had I didn't have. Mm -hmm. They had an inner peace that I wanted, because even though I was in the NFL, the NFL, you know, stands for not for long. You know, right. you're not going to be there long. Sure. And so you have this constant cloud hanging over your head of when it's going to end. And these guys didn't seem to have that cloud. They just seemed to be at peace and seemed to be blessed in a way that I was not. And they shared the gospel with me that Jesus loved me, died for me. And, and so one morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, I was laying on the couch. I was doing cocaine all night. And my heart was pounding out of my chest because cocaine can give you a heart attack. Mm. I thought I was going to have a heart attack because I heard about guys dying from heart attacks with cocaine. Hmm. And I just said, I can't do this anymore, God. And I gave my life to Jesus, and I stopped doing cocaine that day, hmm. stopped smoking weed that day, stopped cursing that day, got back with my girlfriend that day, April 12, 1984. Never looked back. 
never got high again, and we got married a few months later, and we've been married ever since. It's been, what, 34 years. Matter of fact, September 11th is my anniversary. No way. 9-11 anniversary. And she's a remarkable woman. You know, that's the credence for me. I know you're a heck of a salesman because I've met your wife. And uh, so you are somewhere between a great promoter yourself and uh, a hustler, somewhere in there. That's all I know. But I'm the same boat. I've been 28 years selling my wife, and I just hope she never gets wise, you know. So now let's just talk about it because there's a connection here. That's a great story, and I appreciate you sharing that. You decide somewhere along the line that you're going to jump into the ministry, and eventually you start building a church. Now, we were talking about it. The average church... In America, there's a lot of churches, uh, the attendance is 62 people. So how does a football player who's coming from the wild side of things, gets his life straight April 12th, 1984, go on to build, you know, because everybody misses the middle. Oh, now he's got five campuses (laughs) and 20,000 people, and it just kind of all fell out of the sky. And sometimes when a busy guy like you does that, Sometimes we don't tell how the kind of work that goes involved and the kind of mindset that goes involved. That's kind of a remarkable thing. How do you go yeah. from there to where you are today with the influence you have with The Rock and everything you're doing? How'd you build this thing? You know, after I gave my life to the Lord in 1984, I played two more years. and I just started sharing what I knew with individual people mm-hmm. everywhere I went. I started going to schools. I started going to prisons, juvenile halls, anywhere in the airport, in the bus station, in the grocery store. I just started talking to people. If I was a businessman, I would have been a salesman. I got to share something really good that you need to have. Mm. And I still have that passion today. And when I would meet somebody, God would give me this sermon about how to love that person, how to encourage that person. What are they struggling with? Some people have drug problems. I know about that. Some Mm. people have relationship problems. Hey, I've been there. Some people are discouraged. I've been there. Uh Some people are scared. I've been there. Uh And the gospel is related to all that. So for me, I spent 16 years doing that i started a bible study in my house with kids in my neighborhood we had nine nationalities of kids in my neighborhood Mm. there were filipino kids living on my street i never met a filipino kid or person in my life and matter of fact i went up to them and said you know what are y'all because i I didn't know what nationality they were (laughs) (laughs) and they they were throwing beer bottles on my lawn and they were in high school and i'm like yo yo why y'all throwing beer bottles on my lawn and, and, and I said, what are you? What nationality are you? They said, we Filipino, man. I said, well, listen, Filipino, man. Stop throwing beer bottles on my lawn. <laughs> so, so the way to stop the beer bottles is invite them to a Bible study. Oh, that's good. All right. And you know what? Those kids are still in my life to this day. Wow. They are 40-something years old, mm. and they're still in my life to this day. And so we had black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Filipino, Chinese, Japanese, in my house, and we had such a great time. My kids were just born, mm. and so we had my little kids and these high school kids, and I did that. I became a youth pastor. I started doing youth events, and for 16 years, I just said, y'all need to know this good news. And then after 16 years of doing that, we decided to start the church. Mm. We had 3,300 people our first day, mm-hmm. which I heard was a record in the United States. <laughs> I had a lot of people. And then we moved on from there. And I think the secret sauce for me was being real. I mean, I talk about my sins all the time. Mm-hmm. Everybody in my church knows I did cocaine, that I was a horrible boyfriend, that I struggle with anxiety, and I wake up stressed out mm-hmm. still to this day sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just a guy trying to make it myself. And, you know, I got to pray. I got to bend my knee every day to make it myself. And so as our church, we're trying to bring hope to every person we can 
loving people where they're at. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me, you know, first of all, you were very faithful with what you had in front of you. Exactly. You know, everybody wants to get to heaven. No one wants to die to get there, right? Here, pastors, oh, I'd love to have 20,000 people. People say to me all the time, oh, I'd love to have your business, but I'm not prepared to do the things you did. It's about being planting where you are, right? Going, okay, I got nine people in front of me. Let me do everything I can with this nine. That nine turns into 15. Let me do everything I can with the 15. And so here's the thing that people miss all the time. For 16 years, I did this. Yeah, and let me tell you something, Brian. There was a lot of pain yeah. in that 16 years. Mm. And there's a lot of pain in the 18 years since. Right. There's been a lot of pain. It's a grind. On my Instagram, there was a quote today that brought me to tears. It was actually a few days ago. And my Instagram's at Miles McPherson. But it said, matter of fact, let me see if I can read it. It says, whenever you're going through a trial, I'm a paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're going through a trial, if you wonder where God is, just remember that during the test, the teacher is always silent. Mm, that's a great quote. Uh, that's a great quote. The mm. teacher is always silent during the test. And, mm. you know, we go through things, and God is sitting right there. He's not, how are you going to trust me? I've always gotten you through. And let me tell you, when I first got the job as a youth pastor, I had a house. I bought a house when I was playing football, and my house payment was like 1500 bucks. I had two cars, three kids, and when I left football, I got a job as a youth pastor. I made $125 a week. Wow. So I was an engineering student, so I know math. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm going with this thing, fella? <laughs> and when I got offered that job, $500 divided by four weeks is $125 a week divided by $1,500 a month. I'm in the hologram. Yep, yep. <laughs> That's just for my house. That's not right. food and everything else. Right, and, and your wife, and, who's and, not an engineering student, she can add up quicker than that. <laughs> she can add up quicker than that. <laughs> but in that very moment, God mm. said, you're going to do it for the money, you're going to trust me. I said, I'll take the job. Mm. I never missed a meal. Mm-hmm. I, I worked like a dog, like I'm still working like a dog. I'll yeah. rest when I die. Yeah, And I was like, if you're faithful in the little things, mm. then God will trust you with the big things. Right. And so... Checking it out, checking out, doing it, doing it, being faithful. There's consistency. I always believe success leaves clues. I believe there's pathways. I think some of the stuff that helped you become a high school football player and persevere through, some of the stuff that helped you become, you know, an all-American college player, some of the stuff that helped you get in the NFL, and then dealing with these disappointments. Then all of a sudden, you have a whole new paradigm. You have a whole new lease on life. But you know what? It's not all given to you. You have to go back to high school. You're going back to college. You're going back to the program that was being canceled. And many people don't believe that when you discover this purpose and you feel this passion, it's like, okay, this is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to do. That there's a lot of grind involved and there's a lot of work involved. And you have to start over. I built this hugely successful company and I do seminars and this and that. I got on a podcast. I'm like, yeah, I have no idea how to do this thing. You know, I'm in here talking to myself. What am I doing? And it's like, I've had that experience a dozen times in my life, you know. And you start over kind of ground zero, except... You have these experiences of what you've done in the past and lean into. And now here you are. I, I would say this, just as you're talking about it, you know, even taking it from where you started to where it is today, maybe we have pastors and people who listen, who are running organizations. We have business leaders. We have people who are a lot of small business owners. What were the keys to building the organization that you built? If you get a couple of tips for somebody. Yeah, I would say be a servant mm. and understand what's service you are providing to your customer Mm. and be focused on making sure they get that. Mm -hmm. We're in the people business. When I see people, I'm thinking, how can I love that person and encourage that person? Mm -hmm. That's the focus. It's not what I can get. It's what I can give them. Mm. Jesus said he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. 
And so keep the focus on the people, not the check, not the car, not the house, because then those people, be, you're using the people. Mm-hmm. Focus on your customer being satisfied with the product that you feel you're here to give. The other thing is, you know, a vision is a picture of your preferred future. And so when you think about losing weight, if you want to turn your keg into a six-pack, <laughs> you have to visualize the six-pack. You sure. have to visualize, you have to see it. And then you have to pursue it every single day and get up every day. I'm going to go get it. I'm going to go get it. Rain, sleet, sunshine, winter. I grew up in New York. I went running outside in high school in snow two feet deep with five below zero. I'm out there running. All mm-hmm. my friends are in the house watching TV. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have that vision and never, ever, ever stop. Mm-hmm. When I got cut from the Rams, my roommate got cut the same day. He went home because he lived in California and just didn't work out. I was 3,000 miles away from home. I didn't have nothing else to do. I worked out two or three times a day. Mm. And so I would say, don't give up. It's hard work. Mm. And, you know, it's not going to just fall out of the sky. Because, you know, people say, like you, they want a big business. Or people say they want a big church. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, right. I say the same thing. <laughs> I say the same thing. Do you know what you're asking for here? And they don't because they never had it. And, right. you know, or young kids say, I'm gonna, I want to be the boss. I'm like, no, <laughs> you don't know until you step in those shoes. Right. And if you don't have some, as we say in football, a good motor. Right. You'll see here that term in football where guys have a good motor, which means they never stop. Right. If you don't have a motor, being a boss will kill you. Yeah, well, I'm the boss. Buffini Company has 250 employees. I have 250 bosses. And then I go home. <laughs> I got a wife and six kids. I got seven more bosses. I fall somewhere behind the dog. You know what I'm saying? Right? Isn't that what leadership is? Isn't that what it means to be oh, in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the more you have, we have a couple hundred employees, give or take. And, yeah. you know, you got to be in the people business. Right. You're serving. More feet to wash. So let's just kind of dive in here for a second, if you will. You're a guy of great passion, and that's what I always admire. You have great enthusiasm. If people were listening to you and saw you, they think you were, you know, 20 years younger than you are. And I really think it's your emotional and spiritual vitality that's kept you young. But you're a man of great passion, a man of great vision. And you have written a book called The Third Option. And it's a topic we've never really talked about in this environment. But I'm a guy that's married to an African-American woman. I got six little mini mild McPherson-looking kids. <laughs> we've lived our life. We promote. We kind of demonstrate it. We've never really talked much about it except a few little jokes and a little bit of the... I've told people my guess who's coming to dinner stories and, uh, you know, going down to... South Carolina, going to the African Methodist Episcopal Church, a thousand people rocking down on Sunday morning and one little snowflake at the back of the church, you know. And, uh, you know, I've done all that. But you've written this book called The Third Option because it's really kind of germane to some of the things going on culturally and whatever else, what we see in our society today. Talk to us a little bit about The Third Option and what's on your heart these days. The Third Option is about honor. And our culture is so divisive and so critical and so entitled and everybody's about me. What do I want? And it's so about us versus them. And in every race conversation, you have to pick a side. Uh What side are you, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, rich, poor, police? Are you for the police or not for the police? And everything's about us versus them. Mm -hmm. And those people versus my people, those like me versus those not like me. This book is about honoring what we have in common. Genetically, we're 99.5% identical, every person. But we're all made in the image of God. We're all made for the purpose and with the ability to have loving relationships with each other. And if we can focus on how 
to honor each other, racism and the cloud of racism, the pain of racism, the blind spots we have, have destroyed our ability to honor one another, it's caused division. Mm. So this book's going to teach us how to, one, recognize the blind spots that we have, how to get over the fear that we have, the ignorance that we have, how to understand how to love correctly. Mm-hmm. It's going to give us tools to honor one another and develop stronger relationships with each other, no matter what we look like. Right. Don't you think that the church has played a role in the us versus them as well? You know, I'm a God-fearing man who had his life changed myself. In fact, it was a cornerback for the San Diego Chargers that influenced me spiritually by the name of Gil Bird. Oh, wow, yeah. He played with me. Yeah. We're on the same team. I'm all for you. I can sit in there and I can say amen and word when you hold up the Bible on Sunday mornings and all that stuff. We have people who are not of any particular faith listening here today. And they look at the church and they go, has the church led in this? I mean, in some cases it has, but some cases it's been as bad as everybody else. And I would echo that 100% because the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. Mm. If you go to most churches, 97%, give or take, you'll see one demographic mm-hmm. most of the time. Mm-hmm. Our church happens to be blessed where that's not the case. Sure. We have the United Nations, and we're very diverse. It is the United <laughs> Nations. I will definitely say that. Yeah. You know, and so and that's one of the reasons I have a little bit of credibility to write about it, because sure. I see it every day Right in my house, in my Bible study, in 1986 when I started, all the way to now, it's yeah. 33 years later. So I've always seen it and never not seen it. I've seen it in my family, right? but the church definitely has to step back and go, we need to model this because Mm -hmm. if the church is segregated, they're just reinforcing division. Now, there's a lot of reasons. Some of them is practical with music style, preaching style. However, we definitely need to step back and reach across, not the aisle, but reach across the pulpit. And then everywhere else, too. Exactly. A great example of this is my kids were doing the Spanish class, and they go, we got to hear Pastor Miles this weekend. And I go, why is that? And they go, because he's preaching a sermon in Spanish. And I go, what? And so you are kind of a, you know, you've been taking (laughs) lessons and practicing. uh, You were poquito in your Spanish at one stage. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a kid, my father told me I was adopted from Puerto Rico because of my skin color. (laughs) I got to learn Spanish because I want to get a Latina. (laughs) But like to me, that's a great example. And that's a great example for people in business. And so on and so forth. I've attracted to myself a whole bunch of people in our business that aren't like me. They don't have Irish accents. They don't all have the same political persuasion. They don't all come from the same spot. And so I continue to grow me and work on me to develop as a person to attract more people in to hear the good stuff. Because we're all about impacting and improving people's lives. That's our mission at our company. We want to impact people through our events and training. We want to improve them through our coaching and support. And so there's an example to me where you went and worked, and you put in a lot of hours over a long period of time, took lessons this and the other, so you could even come to expand yourself to be able to speak Spanish. And I will say this, you have a lot of Hispanic people in your church, they were walking out six feet tall that Sunday morning. You're exactly right, and if people missed it, I think your kids, they got credit going to Point Loma to come hear me from the Spanish class. I heard about that class. <laughs> yeah, right. Their assignment was to come listen to me speak Spanish. Yeah. How did I do? Did they, they thought you were great. They oh, thought good, you were good. great. They were taking notes. They were all wrote papers on it and whatever else. Oh, cool. You know, I enjoyed it. I will say this. It's about exposure. You know, it's about exposure. All of a sudden, you know, they say, you got to walk a mile in another person's shoes. Well, I think you have to take off your own shoes to walk in someone's shoes, you know? 
Initially, here's the emotions I went through. The first 15 minutes, I'm like, what am I doing here this morning? I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> I just, I, I'm like, I don't speak Spanish. Then I'm like, hey, this is really cool. I can see how hard he's worked at it. You had a translator there. And then I thought, geez, this is what it's like for some people. Because I know you have people who are doing sign language. This is what it's like for some people every Sunday. Then yep. I thought about, oh, yeah, I remember when I was guess who's coming to dinner. And I went down to Beverly's church. And there were 1,000 people, African-Americans in a church. And I was the one white guy. And yep. I'm married to this woman for 28 years. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking during that service. You know, many a time, my wife and I, have we been sitting in a church that was 95% white, and she was the only black gal. Right. And we don't really talk too much about this stuff, per se. We kind of live our lives. But all of a sudden, it gives you a different perspective. One of the things I always think about with regards to race is that people don't have much exposure. And if you look at stuff through the media and TV and this and that and the other, like I grew up in Ireland. There was no race issues in Ireland because we had no races. I used to say I married the first black person I met. And so, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, the thing about it is, there's a lot of people have no exposure. We all go home to our corners. We all go to our own little worlds. And it's like, okay, if I'm middle America, my idea of black people is NFL, NBA, rap music, a few actors I really like, and what's on the news, and any shows that cover the hood, or drug dealing, or this and any other. And that's my exposure to black people. And so... Someone walks along the street and I see a black person. No wonder I'm scared. I'm so glad you said all of that because it is so true how people don't know people. Mm -hmm. In the book, I talk about in-group, out-group, and we have the groups that we're part of, which is our in-group. The groups we're not part of are our out-group. Our in-group, we know very well. You mm -hmm. know Irish people very well. You know yeah. radio people very well. You know business people very well. But if your out-group is, in this case, blacks or Mexicans, mm -hmm. you only know what little bit of information you get from one experience here, one experience there, the media, and mm -hmm. it's very flawed and limited. Mm -hmm. And that's why, in this book, I want to give people tools to, one, first understand that and understand there's so much more to people than what they know mm -hmm. and give people tools to get to know people and to break down their own biases and to accept their own biases. I think... Brian, the, probably the biggest, biggest aha in this book is that you can be racially offensive and not be a racist. And I want people to think mm. about this statement for a minute, mm. because people think that if I do anything racially offensive, then I am a racist. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, I can't accept that I will do anything racially offensive. But that's not true. You can offend people racially and be completely innocent. Right. Of right. This it's, is huge. It, this is huge. This is the biggest aha of this whole book. Yeah. And if people can say, you know what? Yeah, okay. Miles McPherson, who wrote this book, can be racially and has been racially offensive. Sure. I don't consider myself a racist. But if someone points out to me, hey, you offended me, okay, I'm sorry. Right. Let me learn. Right. Versus saying, I'm not racist. That wasn't offensive. You got it wrong. Right. Because I want to defend my own ego. Sure. And so if people can get to the point where they say, listen, I just want to learn how to be better. You know, because most people say they're not racist. Right. But it doesn't mean they don't do things offensive. Like when people say, I don't yeah. see color. Well, that's offensive to people. Right. The only person who doesn't see color is a person who's carrying a white cane with a red tip <laughs> on it. You know what I mean? So here's an example. I've presented to millions and millions of people in our seminars. And on occasion, I've gotten letters that, hey, that was very racially offensive. And then someone will take it the next step and they'll say, you're a racist. That's really the deal. No one ever considers themselves a racist, but other people, you do something that's insensitive, like you're saying, and then someone calls you racist. So I've had this happen, 
And I go, geez, that's amazing. And I'll write back to him and say, very sorry I offended you. I never intended to offend you. I appreciate the feedback because I can get better. Not just in right. a political correct sense, but I can get better. And then I'll include a picture of the wife and kids. And I go, by the way, if I was a racist, my wife would stab me in my sleep while my six kids held me down. <laughs> but I did something that offended somebody. Right. And yet I'm obviously not a racist. But yes, I can offend somebody. And I think this is a huge point because in our culture today, social media, news, politically motivated stuff, somebody says something, the judgment comes down and you are this. And now right. I think that is creating a greater divide than anything because you call somebody a racist. How do you defend yourself? How do you defend yourself? And so that's a huge point to me about the book is that you can do things that are racially insensitive and absolutely 100%. Your motivation, your spirit, your heart is not a racist. Right. And now let's be clear. They are racist. But I oh, yeah, in, madam. in my opinion, and I don't know everybody, so I can't really speak for everybody. But my gut is that people aren't walking around trying to be racist. They either don't know what to say. They're fearful. They're uncomfortable. They've sure. been hurt. They're yeah. angry. And we all can learn how to be more honoring. That's why this book is not about mm -hmm. not being racist. Yeah. It's about honoring. being honoring. Which is valuable to everybody. You can walk around avoiding something but never achieve your goal. Mm -hmm. But if you say, listen, I want to be honoring, mm -hmm. the racism will take care of itself. Sure. Because if you want to be honoring and someone tells you offended them, the first thing you're going to do is say, teach me to be better. You're not going to defend yourself because right. you want to be honored. There's a bigger picture here for me also and for our audience beyond that is, to me, I'm asked to honor my wife. I'm asked to right. honor my employees. I have a, a multicultural United Nations mm. sexually, preference-wise. I got all these people. And whatever difference of opinions are, we're called to honor people. And this is some great stuff in here. Give me three quick tips on how to go about honoring somebody. Great question. You're a great interviewer, by the way. All right, thank you. <laughs> You know, I think every time you have a conversation, you're having a race conversation. Mm. So right now, I acknowledge that you're from Ireland. I see your shade of brown. And when people think about having a race conversation, they always think about, well, I would assume a race confrontation. Mm. Really, it should be a race consultation. Mm. And what that means is that when you talk to people, no matter what they look like, give them a chance to self-disclose what they are about mm. versus you imposing on them your assumptions, mm -hmm. what you saw on television, what you heard from a friend, and what you saw in the media. So it's a race consultation. In other words, speak to people with a posture of learning and not assuming. Number two, see people's color. Mm -hmm. You know, I know in a culture it's very fashionable to say, I don't see color. Mm -hmm. You know, I just see everybody the same. Well, we weren't made the same. We were made because we have a creative God, and God made all kinds of shades of people, different textures of hair and accents, and they're beautiful. Right. So I don't want to say I don't hear your accent. I think it's cool. Right. I, yeah. I, I want to try to do it. Right? <laughs> Good luck with that. And, and, hey, I'll tell you, if you can learn this accent, 20000 to 25000 by the end of the year, Miles. <laughs> and so, you know, when someone told me they didn't see my color, I thought they meant they didn't see red, green, blue, and purple. Sure. I was like, that's messed up. And they said, no, no. I don't see your color. And I was like, wow, so what do you see? Right. Did you make me like you? Sure. How arrogant is that? And think about this. Here's the Irish boy from the south side of Dublin who comes to America. You know, I'm dropped in Guess Who's Coming for Dinner, and I'm immersed in the black culture. And now all of a sudden, I'm listening to light skin, Africa, good hair, bad hair, high yeller. I'm like, hold on a second here. I thought all you folks were African-Americans. No, no. 
everybody does this. And so, you know, people think it's white versus black. Everybody does this because prejudgment is built into the wrong part of our nature, right? We all do. All the stuff you just said, high yellow, good hair. <laughs> I, I got all of that, you know. <laughs> uh, so I would say have a race consultation. Let people self-disclose mm. to you about who they are, nice. what their dreams are, their pains. Yeah. See their color and rename them your neighbor. Mm. You know, whenever you label somebody any kind of derogatory name, you are telling them you are not like me and you are dehumanizing them. And think about it this, if the greatest thing we can do is love our neighbor as ourselves, mm-hmm. if I label you something less than my neighbor, I don't need to love you. And so it makes it easy for us to see someone different than us on television be treated unfairly and be okay with it because they're not like me. They don't deserve what I deserve. And so it's easy to say, oh, those people should be in jail. Those people can be treated like that. Or those people can be withheld their rights. Because as long as I got mine, mm-hmm. you know, they're not on my level. Mm-hmm. But if I say, no, that's my brother, that's mm-hmm. my neighbor, and I have to fight for them as I would fight for me. If we would see people like that and want to know about people's dreams and pains, I'll tell you a lot of this division would go away. Mm-hmm. And so the third option, they go to Amazon.com. I'm telling sure. you, get this book today. It's going to be awesome. I think it was written from a point of bringing unity together. It's bringing a different perspective. We live in a melting pot. And so for a melting pot to start pulling apart the ingredients is kind of a goofy deal to start with. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, there's kind of a blessing being born in Ireland. And I became a citizen by choice. But I go, you know, I see people on the left wing. I see people on the right wing. I go, America's an eagle. You need both wings. Otherwise, you fly around in circles, right? And so I think this dynamic of honoring people, I think as a business person, I need to be able to connect with everyone I do business with and everyone I'm going to serve. Let my customers self-disclose who they are and their perception themselves. Let me see people's color and acknowledge and their differences. And you're Italian and that's your culture, that's your heritage, you're Polish. Honor this stuff. It's what makes America fantastic. And then renaming a person, their neighbor, and call them, hey, my brother, my sister, we both know Junior Seau. I got a chance to work with Junior years ago, and everybody was Buddy. Remember? He was Buddy. Everybody was Buddy. Buddy. Was buddy. Hey, Buddy. <laughs> but, and you know what? Yeah, I wasn't Junior Seau's best friend, but I felt like it because he always <laughs> called me Buddy, you know? And so I think that's a powerful thing. If you've enjoyed this podcast, go check that out and go watch Miles do his thing. I got to tell you, he's really good, and he's really engaging, and he's a really powerful guy that you'll enjoy that. The third option, go to Amazon or wherever great books are sold. I think you'll love it. Before we finish up here today, Miles, I can't let you get out of here without doing with you what I've done with every famous person we've had come through our life here. I got five rapid-fire questions, kind of off the books. I haven't told you what they are, like I never do. So you're quick on your feet. Rapid-fire questions. This will give a little insight more into Miles and a little bit of what makes you tick. Okay, so number one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Pray. Okay. <laughs> Probably the best piece of advice. Nice. Pray. It's not about me. Nice. Okay. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Oh, man. I wish I was a better reader. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. We often get musical stuff. If I give you. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish uh, I but, could but sing. No. I wish I could sing. <laughs> I've sat behind you in church. You do sing, and I I wish you could sing, too. I wish I could sing like Luther Vandross. Yeah, there you go. But, hey, I got a tip for you. You want a referral? There's a great book called How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. I was not a good reader, and I became a speed reader. But Mortimer Adler, that's a great book. How to Read a Book. It's fantastic. And um, I probably read six books a month. 
and um, it helps me. So next, speaking about that, what book has been most instrumental in your life? Well, no doubt the Bible. I mean, I read that thing every day, and it's not even close. Sure. Well, I'm not going to let you get away with that answer because it's too obvious, so I'm going to do this. (laughs) This is not your mother-in-law's podcast, brother. So what one character then in the Bible do you most identify with and why? Probably Moses. Whoa. Because I I feel like I want to help set people free. Wow. Okay. Pretty awesome. All right. Favorite music song. You're in the car by yourself. You need a little juice. No one's around. The kids are going to roll their eyes because they've heard this song so many times. It might be back in the 80s when you were strutting your stuff and you had a big fro. What's Miles' music when no one's around? Well, if, if I had a choice, and this is sometimes I play this in the sanctuary and I blast it loud <laughs> and I just scream it. Yeah. I don't even know the name of the song, but it's Play That Funky Music, White Boy. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love that song. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Play That Funky Music, White Boy. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. That song has probably led you to write the third option, right? Here's a brother singing Play That Funky Music. That's awesome. I'm going to play that on the way home from work tonight, going down the Pacific Coast Highway. Last one. I know you're busy, you're hyper, you're on the go. You're not a big TV watcher. But if there's a movie you've watched over and over again, oh, what's the one? Remember the Titans. Come on. <laughs> Come on. If you, seen, if you haven't seen that movie, you oh. need to move out of the country. <laughs> Let me tell you, that movie is quoted by my kids. Will you ever quit? <laughs> you know. Hey, they will remember <laughs> Not another yard, Miles. Not another yard. My favorite part of that movie is when Julius walks in the hospital Mm. to see Bartir, and he says, this is my brother. Mm. I cry right even now thinking about that. Mm. You know, if you want to end this show on that note. Yeah, right. That guy. And he said, I was scared of you. Yeah. There's so many of us. I'll Mm. tell you this last story. There was a guy hunting, and he saw this monster coming through the woods and it was coming at him and he couldn't get a shot because the monster kept going behind trees and rocks. And next thing you know, the monster was right next to him and he realized it wasn't a monster, it was his brother. Mm. And, you know, in our country, we're looking at people and we think everybody's a monster, but Mm. really, we're just brothers. And Mm -hmm. and this book, The Third Option, Mm. is hopefully going to help people realize that. And and I would also like to send people to, um, if they want to see... I know we give them a lot of websites, and you sure. can put this in the email. Go to sdrock.com to see sermons every week at milesofpearson.com. That's beautiful stuff. All right. Great stuff. I'm more fired up to watch Remember the Titans than ever before. <laughs> well, thank you, my brother, for being today. This is different kind of content for us, but I think it's very powerful. I think people are always interested in what I'm doing. You're one of the places I go to to get fueled and fired up, and I, I thank you for that. I thank you for having the courage to write this book and bring this message. I think uh, we can all learn how to honor people no matter what the color is or race or background. And uh, I think you gave us some great tips today. I hope you get the third option. Thanks for spending some time with us on the Brian Buffini Show today. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 